0: Welcome back, my friends, to The Sweet Spot, where IT leaders share the insight with other leaders and others that want to lead. My name is Carlos Vargas, and as I think every week, we need to make sure that we record, because when we're with Paul and Howard, we need to record before we start. So, hey guys, <laughs> how you doing today? Doing really All good. good. I will wave, as I usually do. <laughs> so, snow, no snow, sun, no sun. Whiskey, wine, where are we these days? Snow. <laughs> is that your transition?
1: I can tell you we have no snow and this is disappointing because as you can see behind me is Blue Mountain. I will also be going to Blue Mountain on Friday. I'm scheduled and have lift tickets for skiing on Saturday and Sunday, yet there are no trails open at all anyway. <laughs>
2: don't you so, pump in fake snow like we do in the Ameri- in, in America or do you guys not believe in fake snow yes
1: but it's it's additive right you're 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 adding snow on top of a base of some sort there's currently uh, insufficient base which means I, I have four days of hope that snow will come enough to base this this trip or it'll be a uh, uh a waiting trip for four days versus uh, a skiing trip for four days
2: it's it's, it's, uh, it's, it's funny, we had this conversation over the weekend because almost all of my friends ski or snowboard, right? They participate in the, in the Denver winter activities and I do not, not even slightly. Um, but what I say is the same to everyone. Like I'm happy to go to the lodge. I'm happy to go on the experience. I will not go on the slopes. I will sit outside with tea. I will watch all of the festivities. And then if you give me a time, I will have a wonderful meal prepared when you arrive broken beaten and exhausted from your day on the slopes and i will have a wonderful warm meal prepared with drinks to go along with it we can have a lovely evening play some board games i will not be joining you on the slopes
1: (laughs) surprisingly i get a lot of requests to go do you fear the heights or is it uh slipping it down a long uh long mountain that's your problem
2: uh, I've never skied before, and I'm, you know, I'm now in my forties, so I don't think learning is now is the right time. Plus, um, I just don't have any interest in it. Like <laughs> it's, it's not like, you know, it's not like it really appeals to me to go spend a few days on the bunny slope and try to get some feeling for it. Um, I never was a natural skateboarder, so it's not like I have. I, I don't even have skills that could translate. Um, on a I mean. Yeah, but, but we redneck sled, right? Like growing up, I lived in the mountains and we'd get maybe two inches of snow at a time, max. So we'd tie a sled to the back of a four-wheel drive pickup truck and try to throw each other off. It's not quite the same thing. I'm not sure that that translates well. And maybe it's the injuries from that that keep me not really thrilled about the prospect of you know, falling down a mountain in a semi-controlled fashion. <laughs>
0: my control fashion. That's really interesting. <laughs> so where are we going today? Well,
2: I think we're coming up on the end of the year. And so I think it's appropriate as IT leaders to kind of talk about our uh, our predictions uh, and, and kind of trends for 2021 and, and forward. And I think We start with the topic you brought up before we clicked the record button, Carlos. So why don't you you lead off with that topic?
0: So by the time that you're listening to this, something happened that probably a lot of people did not expect it. Um, The giant on technology had a huge outage, that is Google. Uh, So in around uh, December uh, 14, uh, Google experienced a major outage across all their platforms, meaning uh, YouTube, Google Search, and Gmail, and everything across the world. So they were looking at it. So some of that happened to companies also. It's and not, not more like- than a
1: week prior. AWS was out.
0: That's true. Yes.
1: So that's two I'm of looking- the three super uh, super cloud providers. That's an interesting problem.
0: Do uh, you interesting. have a rant
2: on this? The, well, the search function continued to, to work, but all the back backend services were down, right? So like Pokemon Go uses backend services and they were down. Um, as of yet, I haven't actually seen an after action report that says what the problem was, right? Um, in the AWS outage, it was a misconfiguration on their part that, that crashed everything, mm-hmm. right? It was kind of... Like, ultimately, you have to pick, you can either be truly fully agile, or you can be risk adverse. And as you twist those dials, they're kind of pinned together, right? As you twist the dials, you get more of one and less of the other. And I would say the, the number one thing that you need to go to in, in with DevOps as a leader is understanding that you're trading one for the other you're trading um, risk aversion for agility, for speed to production. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes it goes horribly, horribly poor. Now, I do think we need to view it within the context of the change rate of both Google and Amazon and recognize that, um, yes, this can definitely happen from one change going poorly. But I want to say Amazon does something like 6,500 changes a day, production Mm -hmm. changes a day. Right. So while, you know, if we think back, we've seen a lot of failure, right? We've seen a lot of 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 downtime that's been significant Um, at the same time, the failure rate per change is is so much lower than I think the rest of our kind of networks uh, have or have had in the past um, that I think we need to kind of understand both sides of the equation a little bit.
1: And I think we need to have a little bit of intellectual honesty, right? Uh, Like the reality is all systems go down, uh, whether it's your data center or your closets full of compute uh, and public cloud uh, implementations. And the reality is the public cloud implementations are far more complex and far broader and have far more services than you will have. And therefore they have far many places of potential breakdown. Uh, And therefore you have to sort of believe that to be true. It's also important to know that that only 4% of total compute within applications is in the cloud already right now. So there's still 96% that are sitting in uh, owned data centers or rented data centers or co-locations or or sitting in somebody's desktop in some office somewhere. That all still is true. And while cloud is still a massive growth and this is where you, in my opinion, you should be putting your things if you build something new. Um, there's still this diversification of compute and data center requirement across that entire environment. In fact, I would generally say that even though cloud is growing substantially, um, even though it is on the decline of growth, uh, Edge is, will become the new cloud shortly. So it's not just cloud as a deployment option. It's data center's deployment option. It's Edge as a deployment option. It's my client's device's as a deployment option. It's compute within my supply chain as a deployment option. It's SaaS, uh, it's consuming public services. All of those are deployment options, not just one single destination.
0: So looking um, at I, I, what will be the prediction then?
1: So
2: so I, before we get into the prediction, I kind of want to touch on something that, that Paul said and that is that everything goes down. And the truth is nothing. Nothing has a true 100% uptime time um, function. Everything will, given enough time, everything will eventually go down. The question becomes, because I I think the public cloud outages that we've seen are somewhat unique in a couple ways. One, um, it's not very frequent that your entire data center goes down, Mm -hmm. right? It's not very frequent that absolutely every application that you have hosted in your co-location facility, whether you own it, lease it, rent it, whatever, Go, all of that goes down and is, and is un- un- inaccessible. And yet public cloud, that does seem to be the case, right? Um, sometimes it's the entire region goes down. Sometimes it's the entire world goes down. Sometimes it's an entire hemisphere, right? Like their scale of, of the outage. Um, but when we think about outages, we tend to think about them within the context of some percentage of infrastructure. Um, and one of the things that's pervasive, and I think we should acknowledge, is it tends to be when we hear the notification of public cloud going down, um, the whole thing is down. Additionally, um, I think it's one thing when it's your responsibility or someone on your team, right? Ultimately still your responsibility, right? Your team made a configuration change that brought things down. right? The network guys push, push a new config, Um, somebody installed new equipment, spanning tree was not turned on whatever, 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 right. There's a million things, DNS, 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 right. Right. Um, and it's, I think it's one thing to be able to look at yourself and go, yes, we made a mistake and we can add some sort of change control, some sort of process, some sort of risk mitigation to fix that in the future. But with public cloud, you don't have that ability. And I think. I don't think that means don't use public cloud. I think what that means is r- r- risk and resiliency still need to be the number one or one of the top five considerations when doing your architecture design. Right? Um, in in a previous episode, we discussed um, policy and strategy, and I think when you're when you're determining that your strategy is cloud first, that your policy probably needs to be not one cloud, but rather some mix of clouds that add some resiliency to your environment so that you know were aws to have an outage google to have an outage microsoft to have an outage you've got you've still got some resiliency to maintain some uptime, so that the damage to the businesses is a lesson. now i don't know that i would put everything up there you know i don't know that i would duplicate everything across two different clouds because that does get to be complex and costly but i think thinking about you know what what do we consider to be maybe the the 3 5 10 15 or 20 things that are truly core to the business that allow us to continue to accept orders and accept funds um, i think i think it is critical to add that sort of resiliency
1: that that's true but also in fairness the likelihood that the internal set of services were down is low in any one of those providers right they didn't have full data center outages they didn't have full uh, region outages, they had inaccessibility to those services and to those data centers. Right. So sure. that w- that would suggest to me, you know, the DNS, DNS, DNS problem is that there in fact are single points of failure outside of their control, right? Even, in, even in your own data center, you could have uh, duplicate infrastructure all the way out to the, uh, out to the, out to your diesel generator in the roof. Uh, and still only have a single telco provider to the internet, right? So there could absolutely, or even if you choose multiple telcos, they still use a single POP or CO somewhere out in the middle of the city. At some point, you know, the internet comes together, right? In a physical manner, and that situation could be out. So, you know, it's almost unlikely that you'll find zero points of failure in an entire end-to-end from consumer to service and back.
2: And I don't think you're ever going to do that, right? Yeah. But I think it. I think it is really important to to, to determine, um, kind of to your point, right? Inaccessibility is the same as downtime, right? right? Right. If I cannot accept an order from a customer, if I cannot process the thing that makes me money, it doesn't matter if the servers are humming away. If I can't do that, it's the same as 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 an outage. It's the same as down. Um, it's the same. They might as well be rebooting. Yep. right sure the uptime is different in that when whatever it is gets fixed they all magically come back up but at the same time the cost to the business is the same right sure. and, and to your point um we don't we don't we don't find it satisfactory to have a single source of power we don't find it satisfactory to have a single data center connection and ideally right when we're choosing a data center location we choose a data center location that's at two different the convergence of two different power grids. So we're getting fed ideally um, from completely separate entrances, right? When we choose a data center, we choose a data center that that the ingress points for the multiple fiber backhauls come in um, from completely opposite corners of the building, right? So that somebody with a backhoe can't, can't crush all the fiber in one fell swoop, right? It's never going to be perfect but we really do go out of our way to mitigate as much of that as possible. And I think this is part of that, that risk mitigation strategy.
1: Which, which kind of begs the question, if you know large internet public cloud providers go to much bigger lengths of their resiliency than standard um, user of those services, then what makes us think that the standard user of those services can be just as resilient? In other words, we don't have uh, Multi regions. We don't have potentially, you know, eight data centers within a, s- a single city. We don't have multiple generators. We don't have multiple uh, uh, battery-powered uh, UPSs. Like we don't necessarily have all those things that they have, and yet they still go out. So, sure. Uh, how? How well, that's, we, that's why you spread it against two good? different
2: teams. What was that? Right, that's why you. That's why you spread it against two different teams. Right. Right. Because uh, the the fact is, my data center my hosted data center in the 10, 12 years that I was in the hosted data center, not once did they have a complete data center outage, not one time, right? right? Not one time did they have a complete data center outage where DR was also affected, mm-hmm. right? So um, at the same time, it seems every six months, we've got a major cloud provider outage that affects thousands of services, both internal and external to that, to that Provider, right? Like right. in the case of Google, all Google services went down, but also everything that relied on the Google backend went down. Mm-hmm. Right? It was it was all red lights. Um, amazingly, search the Google search kept working, but everything else was down. Right? Um, I think that's and the so, federated
1: nature of Google search. I think that's the part. sure. <laughs> that's sure. <the> difference.
2: <laughs> um, but but again, right? Um, if the problem is a configuration gets pushed, DNS, 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 right? Then yeah. what we need is different teams. Right. Um, I'm not seeing anything that says Google's hardware, Amazon's hardware, or, or, you know, their infrastructure is less reliable by, by any stretch. The problems are almost always related to we pushed a configuration that did not work. And that caused the failure. And it took us that long to back it out because the infrastructure is so incredibly big. We have to automate the push and then to undo it. Sometimes the the configuration management fights against itself. So it's a bigger problem to undo it than we initially think, right? The the kind of auto recovery takes over and it takes a while t- for all of that to, to repropagate. Um, and so, no, they I don't think they have different issues. And I think they're far better than the rest of us for the most part. But when things go bad, the ripple effect also because of their scale is larger,
1: right? So, so speaking of 21%. 2021 predictions, then I believe, and and tell me if you agree that there'll definitely be a big push in 2021 to have public cloud services, the operating model, uh, be available on premise in in data center, and also be available to some extent at edge, so that you'll be able to allocate those exact same resources use those exact same tools, as you would in the public cloud, across your internal data center and any edge devices to which you can you control do you um, uh, uh, no um, I you
2: know in, in very limited in a very limited sense I do right like, I say we it's look a push
1: to, I, I think there's years before it becomes true but but I think they will market that capability
2: uh, I mean we can look to Microsoft right and and kind of talk through the Azure stack um Product, project, debacle, depends on how you put it, right? Um, ultimately, I think Azure Stack is a really smart, um, really useful strategy for companies that are maintaining a mix of on-prem and Azure as a cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, it doesn't really do anything for AWS. Um, and I think it's really, really smart. Adoption has not been overwhelming. For lack of a better term, um, I do think we're going to see some evolution of that, and I, and I do think that that twenty twenty one had offers the biggest potential for push for Azure Stack. Now, I do think there's problems. Uh, the vendor selection is very very small when it comes to Azure Stack, um, and I don't think the vendors have really built out the quality of um, of support in Azure Stack. Right, mm-hmm. um, so. I think 2021, we're going to start to see that change. Um, frankly, uh, unified management across um, uh, across cloud and and including your on-prem private cloud, um, I think we're going to see a big uptick in 2021. And I think we need to, right? Um, I think the the kind of work from home agility that we've talked about in uh, during COVID, right? That that kind of changed our product, our project life cycle, our product life cycle. Um, I think we're going to see the upside to that, and I think we're going to see a lot more hybrid cloud um, creations in 2021, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more companies um, really start to embrace the power that comes from building that that on-prem and cloud hybrid multi-cloud kind of model that we've talked about over and over again in 2021. And things like Azure Stack will help with that. There's some things like um, El- Elastic Beanstalk that I don't see being created on-prem ever. Um, I don't know that I would consider that a, that a um, you know, an, an essential piece of AWS for for those trying to replicate AWS like services on-prem. Um, but, you know, so that's where I that's that, that's the only asterisk that I put. I think there's some things that are in cloud that make no sense to put on-prem, even in some minor version.
1: I'm glad you used the word hybrid cloud. So I'm going to ask a question. Uh, do you define hybrid cloud as um, a single application, a single service that spans your data center and public cloud? Or do you consider hybrid cloud uh, any architecture with any number of services that get deployed to multiple places, i.e., on premise and in one or more clouds? Um. More the first than the second,
2: but I don't think it's quite that simple, right? Because um, I think we could define an application in about twelve different ways, right? Um, and you could say I'm going to put the entirety of this application in AWS as an example, um, and then you have some piece of it on prem, some some component on prem that does a read or write, a call to or from that public cloud, and I would I would say that all of that is one application, and therefore that's hybrid
1: cloud. I see. So you define an application as multiple services versus an application as a single service in that definition.
2: Uh, that, that is correct. Okay. Otherwise I would just call it a service.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Fair right. Because a service doesn't make an application. Right. An application is the holistic experience from start to finish yeah. in my but, mind.
1: But one has definition. defined at least earlier, one defined hybrid cloud as taking a single service um, and ensuring that if it required more resources it could extend into the cloud in order to get those resources as opposed to an application that that has multiple services, some of which are deployed on-premise, some of which are deployed in the cloud, all of which talk to each other when necessary.
2: Yeah, so I would say to be extremely pedantic, um, I would say hybrid cloud for me involves on-premise private cloud. Multi-cloud involves more than one cloud provider. Right. So for me, it would be a hybrid multi-cloud um, and, and generally, if I say multi-cloud or hybrid cloud, I, I tend to mean hybrid multi-cloud um, because I think most organizations, right? They've got some things on-prem, they've got some things in a cloud, in a public cloud provider and probably some other things in another cloud provider, public cloud provider, um, or they should.
1: Yeah, it, is it's hyper-segregation, segregation, right? They've chosen right. which applications are gonna be in the cloud or in their private cloud or in their traditional data center. <laughs> And and very rarely do they mix. And the reason why they don't mix is because they're different teams with different control.
2: And and they're different application styles and they're different states of evolution and they're different states of production and they're different. Right. Right. I think there's a a million different reasons. Um, But ultimately, I think we need to get to the place where they're as it's as unified a team as possible. Right? And I think we need to push for that in 2021. Right? If I was to give someone something to do in 2021, right? a, 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 a prediction I'd like to see fulfilled, um, it's that we continue to break down teams. Um, so while different team members may have different specializations, we don't think of them as different teams, but rather members of the same team, members of the same control space, members of the same kind of intelligence and communication sphere. As soon as we say this is one team, what we're doing is saying, this is people that communicate in this circle better than they communicate in any other circle. And I think ultimately if if we're trying to really push our hybrid multi-cloud strategy and policy, I think that that ends up being a huge roadblock. No, I'm not responsible for that. That's somebody else that's responsible for that. And oh, we communicated about that internally, but really John is supposed to communicate externally And and Sean was on vacation that week, and so the communication didn't really get transferred over to the second person versus it's one team, and we really need to learn how to share as one team. And while that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, right, especially as teams get larger and larger, um, I think we need to start adopting that mentality and really starting to create that culture. And so we've got elastic groups within one team, right? One team, one team, one team. Or like I say, same team, same team, same team.
1: So physical architecture, the infrastructure architecture within a data center, is that likely to be hyper, right? Is that likely to be individual nodes? We'll call extreme scalability at the component layer. And I'm not just take, talking about uh, uh, hyper-converged, I'm talking about individual components that scale as, uh, as sort of minutely as you need to. Is that, is that the trend we're seeing? or not?
2: I mean, the trend we should be seeing is there is no infrastructure, as it were. Hmm. There is simply applications that sits on hardware. right? I, I, I think, ultimately, we need to start giving infrastructure less and less of a priority in, in what we do and give the and really, really, really concentrate on it's, it's, it's actually all applications. And the truth is, what do we do with infrastructure anymore? you plug it in and you turn it on and everything else is an application. Everything else is a piece of software that, that we use um, and and thus we're all just one software team.
1: Yeah. Except for middleware. It's, middleware has always been that burden between application development and infrastructure. Infrastructure always felt like they owned it. Uh, the application team always felt like infrastructure didn't know how to configure it properly. And that could be <laughs> less. <laughs> right? That could be OS, that could be application server, that could be web server. All of those things are in the middle. And yet I still believe there isn't a real owner for it.
2: But, but I think that's what the infrastructure team needs to be, Right. to, to be honest, right? I think the infrastructure team, um, we, I've always kind of been an infrastructure guy, right? Um, I think we spend too much time in the infrastructure. I think we need to actually be the middleware application team. Mm-hmm. Like I would rename the team, middleware application team. Right. Really focus on the software that moves the applications that run the business. Right. Um, You know, the the difference in being able to properly configure a SQL server and understanding how SQL operates while not being a DBA is enormous. The number of DBAs that understand how to properly configure a SQL server, you could probably count on two hands worldwide. Right. Sure. Right. Um, And most of them have written books. Most of them are the blogs that the rest of us kind of, you know, hunt after. I, I'm not going to really I'm not ever going to be a DBA, but I do a lot of SQL configuration consulting um, because understanding how to really like design and architect SQL servers based off a data set and how to build the SQL software backend to do what you want it to do in an efficient way is a really important skill set. It is that middleware skill set that you talk about, right? The same thing in the operating system, the same thing in the virtualization layer. Um, whereas I think we need to get to the point where our infrastructure starts to look more and more similar. I'm not saying the infrastructure should be minimized, right? The value of infrastructure should be minimalized, the value of high performing, reliable hardware is still very, very important. I just want to change the way we think about, right? Kind of that culture conversation, because yeah. um, otherwise you're going to be stuck in a situation where you've got your application development team, you got your DevOps team, you got your infrastructure team, and all of a sudden we're right back to three teams. And everyone has the ability to then say, it's an SEP. Why did that go down? It's SEP, it's someone else's problem. Right. Mm. But really, aren't we all doing the same thing? <laughs> right. Right. Like, like the reality is we should all be pushing configuration to the application layer. Um, and the hardware and the hardware management needs to be the least of things that we do. If we're spending too much time in the hardware, we've chosen the wrong hardware.
1: So you find I find that incredibly interesting because I look at, you know, big providers and I just watched AWS reinvent the infrastructure keynote last week. Um, and they were detailing in Well, I would say they were discussing in excruciating detail all the potential CPU and core choices you have. And they laid out easily a couple different dozen CPU um, uh, versions one could implement with the servers you're choosing. Like that is that's pretty hardcore. So it sounds like they're creating more opportunity for you to be more choosy down to the silicon, which is which is going against sort of what your perspective is there, where I need to worry less about the hardware, where Amazon's giving you more choice about the hardware. Yeah,
2: but but or even then hardware. I don't need to but even then I don't actually need to worry about the hardware. I just need to understand the levels one through fifteen. Right. Right. What do I configure the set? I configure it at level three.
1: Well, okay, we're starting to get a little
2: bound. I execute a command and I'm at level seven.
1: Do you think we like need I'm not, 15 CPU choices? No.
2: Not even remotely, okay. Not, like, I don't think we need 15 CPU choices. I think, <laughs> you know, the San Diego supercomputing group probably needs three. You know what I mean? Like, I think everybody needs right. probably three. The problem is if you were to build the Venn diagram, you'd probably end up with 15 different, you know, eight, Amazon has determined you end up with 15 different bubbles.
1: Right. right? And I mean, they, they create specialty offerings, right? So they have for, for data, they have. CPUs that are specifically for training and then CPUs for specifically for inference, right? Like inference-tuned course. Uh, And they might have the same thing for sort of graphics processing versus non-graphics processing using Intel chips versus AMD chips. uh, The choice arguably is overwhelming.
0: Well, it's like Howard mentioned. Howard mentioned something interesting. For SQL, he knows how to configure it, but the DBAs may know how to use it. So, some of these providers are actually giving them choices, not uh, so they can simplify that option. Mm -hmm. So, then that
2: helps. And the the reality is, SQL is a very good example, right? Mm SQL is one of the only applications in my environment where the CPU clock speed still matters. Yep. Right. Right. Almost everything else, I look for core count. And the things that I don't look for core count, I'm probably using GPU acceleration for rather than actual CPU clock cycles. But transactional databases, I want the most, the fastest clock cycle I can get. Right. But, but the truth is I'm, I'm not likely to have five of those that I use, much less 15. I'm likely to say, this is the standard. We've picked three different versions, call it bronze, silver, gold, gold, silver, gold, platinum, titanium, I don't care what, what you call it, right? Tier, tier one, two, and three. And things are deployed that way. I'm not likely to really care that there are 15 different options. Matter of fact, if I'm just getting started I'm likely to be frustrated by the options. But from AWS's side, it really shows their technical acumen and it is a way for them to say kind of feather in our cap we're better at this than you are because we can make all of these millions of options work.
1: (laughs) Right, the permutations and combinations would blow you away.
2: Right. And they are very, very, very good at hardware. I I I like the, the big public cloud providers are so much better at hardware than we are. Right. That I I think it I think it actually adds an exclamation point to my point, which is um, stop focusing on the hardware and focus on the middleware. Focus on being another application support team. Get your hardware as Kind of common as possible within the context of your specific needs, um, and and really kind of you know focus on on really understanding that middleware component because you can't touch the hardware. I make a choice, but I can't touch it. I don't get to decide how the bias is configured. I don't get to decide. I don't get to decide anything, right? I get to pick from the list of available options. If there's right. if the option isn't there that I that I desperately want, you know what I can do about it? Nothing. Or pay a fortune to have something custom built, which Amazon will do. But, but and, the reality is... some of is... those
1: might actually be edge cases, right? The reason why they have so many options is because they uh, are dealing with clients that have, you know, are measuring their transactions per second in the in the millions or the billions or the trillions. And, and the cost of each CPU cycle, when measured at that scale, you can actually achieve savings by finding 2%. Right. 2% sure. might mean millions of dollars. Okay. Well, sure. Great. That's an interesting edge case. So to make everything, all that true, uh, virtualization becomes even more important than it ever has been. And virtualization, while it may have been uh, infrastructure, virtualization or storage virtualization now application, virtualization or middleware virtualization with containers um, is, is containers going to do something different next year? Is that, is there a different trend? Is there, what's your prediction there? Um, I I do,
2: I actually, I think um, our container strategy is going to become more evolved next year, right? Um, Same with serverless. Um, And and frankly, again, I'd like the lines with those things to kind of blend a little bit. Um, I'm, I still, I, I still don't, I have to say I still don't truly understand the value of a SQL container. Of a, of a transactional database container, right? For me, containers. I want my containers to be as stateless as possible, um, and, and and I kind of want to start with serverless, right? Um, if I'm thinking about something that needs to come up really fast, do a job, and then be destroyed, I want to start with serverless. Can I do it in serverless? Can I destroy it? Um, do I can I never back it up? Can I never archive it? Can I never um, do data protection, right? I still need to do security. I still need to protect the integrity. Right. Um, but can the totality of the protection exist within my CI CD, right? And then, and then I go, okay, well, no, I can't do it serverless. Then I want to look to containers. Can I containerize it? And again, right, does it make sense based on the kind of capabilities contained with my environment that, that my container strategy at, at the very least begin with everything that is again, stateless, right? The machine can just be destroyed and recreated strictly from, from code um, there is no data with, contained within there that I need to that I need to have any protection over. Right, um, and this I'm not a pretty sure. Pretty
1: big architectural change, right? Most applications massive. that aren't deployed into the cloud are stateful, uh, and they're persistent. <laughs> uh, and that's that's a dramatic change to a serverless, stateless environment where um, you might even have a federated data model across a variety of regions and servers. Well, that's. That's a distinctly different architecture. Or do you think we're there? Corporate IT, is corporate IT there? Um, No, but, but I think
2: you need to start there before you start pushing on containers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do think that if we look across our environment, um, while we may not think of them as stateless, I think there's a lot of things that are stateless. Um, I think the stateful piece of a lot of the things that we do comes from the manual configuration we're still doing, or the configuration we're doing outside of CI/CD. Right. Um, and I think I think kind of looking at that with 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 a little different lens and going, um, if this were to be d- destroyed tomorrow, if this were to go away, and my backups didn't work, how would I get it back? And if the answer is I would get it back by reinstalling the application and reapplying my configuration, I would argue that's stateless. And you just need to use your CSED to actually push those configurations within the context of whatever configuration management tool you use to manage that piece of middleware. And then you can start looking at, is this a candidate that I could push to a container? Because it seems like the obvious reasonable choice for a container.
1: Right. You'd think like a new uh, sort of stream of consciousness of technology which is the we'll call it the machine learning CI CD pipelines uh, that effectively has started from scratch uh, would have implemented your know, new processes new technologies but I still find stateful implementations like where attributes um, have to be consistent between the training and the inference uh, and therefore I have to now create state within the attributes themselves so that actually hasn't um, evolved, even though it's a completely new pipeline implementation. So uh, there are limits to sort of human thinking there.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the saddest thing that I see is a lack of data ops, right? A lack mm-hmm. of DevOps application to the scale of data. Um, I see a lot more kind of sacred cows in the data space as a percentage, um, which is really sad because to your point, the data space is effectively new. Mm -hmm. right we're building new teams we're applying new leadership right we're adding new tools um and you know it's one i think it's one thing in kind of analytics right when you look to kind of the traditional ba but when we really get into data analytics that's new for for many um and to see that it's still being done it still relies on the contents of a laptop of a data person data scientist data analyst whatever it happens to be um it's almost like we've taken one giant step forward and forty steps backwards in that in that way, right? Um, right. And I think we're going to see a huge adoption of data ops, especially in those organizations that already have DevOps um, and are starting to and 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 have rolled DevOps out into operations, not just applications. Um, I think the data team is going to start to steal steal from that. One of my predictions is we're going to see a large adoption of you know data ops. Um, I do think we're also going to see a large adoption of not hyper-converged infrastructure, but hyper-converged data infrastructure, I think mm-hmm. we're gonna to start to see. Right. I think we're gonna to start to see a lot more usability on things that affect the data that rests on the boxes that we manage or the containers that we manage, right? Um, right. not within the the kind of Docker container, but mm-hmm. but if you think about the the software-defined storage that we use in the cloud, right? It's not really infrastructure. Um, but really start thinking about. If I have all of this data sitting on a system somewhere and the system isn't fully maxed out how can I apply some sort of data tool on top of that to start to get value um, with my data at rest
1: right I kind of like that the sort of the data pipeline or the data ops model is distinct from the application pipeline and ops model uh, because I think there are different concerns with different potential impacts I could I could have a flawed application um, and it still work, work you know, reasonable. But if I have flawed data or biased implementation of my algorithm, well, that has detrimental impact on making actual decisions with the corporation. Uh, so I, most, I like that they're segregated, even though they might share some uh, sort of topology or infrastructure implementations, but they have distinct sort of value and distinct chains. Uh, and I like that the, sort of the bias or audit implementation is equivalent to the security implementation right you have a security incident and event management, Well, you have a bias incident and event management. Especially when it comes to bias of either the data or the application or the algorithm or in fact it's interpretation all those can have varying degrees of biasness, and you're going to need real time and and development aspects of sort of those monitoring tools which is interesting. I, I think I think we're going to see a lot of uh, bias event and bias incident management start to sort of poke its head out in 2021.
2: I agree. I think AI ethics is going to be one of the big trends of, of 2021. Yeah. Um, whether that's us implementing it, which, which I think is still going to be rare, right? I think, I think most companies are very immature in their artificial intelligence implementation. Yeah. Um, but I do think we're going to see a lot more governmental implementation of AI ethics, right? I think we're going to start yeah. to see a lot of standards in 2021 around not just what the legality of data usage is, but really um, how do we report on, how do we control, how do we audit artificial intelligence to ensure that the use of artificial intelligence is in fact ethical. Right, um, And I think we're gonna to start to see that become a little more fully fleshed out and a little less um, theoretical. Um, right now we see a lot of theory um, and a lot of theory that's not really workable. Um, and then I, th- I think we're gonna to start to see the first pieces of legislation. And I think we're gonna start by the end of the year, starting to see the first challenges to that legislation. But right? I think we're gonna to start to find, find the first flaws in that legislation. Some of the things I've seen have been mm, potentially damaging in a large way.
1: And I think we're gonna be a distinctive difference between bias and ethics. Right. You could you could have a biased data set that has no ethical implications, right? That that data set is talking about financial modeling and it has ninety percent mortgages and ten percent credit cards, right? When it should be more balanced out fifty fifty between the two, right? So that's still a biased implementation, even though there's no, you know, ethical implication to the individual people. I think um, I think as long as the construct them together for some reason.
2: Well, but but I think the problem becomes do you have PII that you're using AI against in which case bias can very often equal ethics. Right. Sure. Right. Bias tends to drift to ethics. Ethics re, ethics are humanity. Yeah. Right? Machines cannot be ethical or or lack ethics. Ethics is completely contained within the human component of the machines, right? We interface. We yeah. ask the machine to make a decision based on Incomplete data that is biased in a way that we find to be unethical in how it reacts to people. If it's purely numbers, right? If you remove all the PII and you simply ask a machine, um, take a credit score and a loan value, a a loan to asset value, and give me the risk percentage just with that information. First off, you're going to get a terrible model, but because it's a lot more complex than that, right? But I would say that's a biased model, but not an, but, but, but an, ethical, um, an ethical model as well, right. right? I don't think you have any ethical challenges there because you're using a single independent number right. um, that has nothing to do, I mean, we could argue about the, the ethical value of a credit score, but, but that's a different conversation, right? I don't <laughs> think you're doing anything wrong with AI that really struggles with the, the, the um, ethics there. but it would be hugely biased
1: let's extend to iot so is 2021 are we going to see uh, iot as a mainstay of sort of technology innovations are we going to see Mm. human machine interactions distinctly different in 2021 as as compared to 2020.
2: i think 2022 to be honest like i think 2021 really is going to be the year of the edge but I think the edge is a lot more than just IOT, right? I would argue that the work from home is a move to the edge, right? And I think 2021 really is gonna be kind of a new look at the edge. What does the edge mean? How do we, how do we interact with the edge? Um, how do we get comfortable really truly having an edge? Because I think we've talked about the edge for years, yeah. right? Um, and I think we talk about the edge kind of in the same way people talked about the edge before we realized the earth was round and they thought you'd just fall off.
1: <laughs> right. There's
2: danger in falling off the edge of the earth. Don't sail all the way out there, right? Um, and, and I think we kind of talk about the edge the same way, right? We we use it to define the things that are someone else's problem to some percentage. Oh, we use a we use we we contract our stuff that's at the edge. We we do this for the stuff that's at the edge. Um, and the reality is, 2021 has has been an experience that is universally at at and beyond the edge. And so I think 2021 really will be the year where we start to take a serious look at the edge and really claim the edge as part of our infrastructure, as part of our organization, as part of our operational responsibility. And I think we'll start to look at the edge in a very different way. And I think we're going to see a lot of massive changes in kind of edge policy, in edge strategy. Um, and, And that's going to allow the very tail of 2021 and the beginning of 2022 really to be the year of IoT. Um, because I think once we start to really take into consideration what the edge means, really own the edge, right? Um, then those IoT devices that we previously thought of as someone else's problem because we contracted them as a service, um, I think we're really gonna start to own. And I think we're really gonna start to to kind of kind of say, okay, well, we're gonna accept that we've allowed a little bit more um, fuzziness in the management of that data the management of those tools um, specifically when it comes to um, the securability of those things and I think that's 20 late very very late 2021 and, and 2022 for sure
1: yeah I absolutely agree with you in fact we had a previous conversation about you know the distinct difference between ot and IT and, and I think it's fair to say that IOT is still an ot consideration yes there has been circumstances where uh, or uh, specific equipment was produced like, uh, like parking meters and our traffic lights and our lampposts that are collecting um, OT information and sending that back to a server for the purpose of dashboarding that information or creating event management, that's great. Though that's few and far between in terms of actual implementations. I do think there's true and real OT where I'm buying a machine and that machine requires IT services. It's collecting data, I have to store that data. It's computing information for the purpose of that machine to operate the value of that machine, safety, security, or or just operational support of that machine, like an MRI. And then there is IT that's extending to the edge, all these edge appliances. So I could federate my compute. I could collect and consume data at the branch, uh, at the store, at the... Uh, at the plant. That's that's extending IT into the edge versus IoT. And I don't think they've come together yet. I don't think you've, we've bridged really this IT, thing, other than, you know, specific certain uh, technologies that were produced for the purpose of making that bridge. I, not, I agree. It's not generically true yet.
2: I agree. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we buy IoT as an appliance, right. whereas the edge we own and we do very little edge. But I also don't think we define the edge properly. And right. to me, I don't think they really should be viewed separately. Um, I think there's entirely too much similarity between the two, and I think we need to. Um, I think we need to stop. I, I honestly think it's a it's an attempt to pass the buck, and I think we need to stop passing the buck. Um, right. I think we need to effectively demand that that you know, um, no appliances belong to anyone but IT. If it generates data and sits on the network, frankly, IT needs to own it and they need to own it as completely as they would own anything else. Um, and I think that means an investment in, a, a much bigger investment in real vendor management.
1: Right, but what if it's an asset? What if it's a bulldozer? Are you really expecting IT to manage the bulldozer?
2: No, but I'm expecting IT to manage the things that generate data. To, to some extent. And again, that can be vendor management, right. but it needs to be vendor management with the overlay of what does the data look like? How do we ingest the data? How do we secure it? Um, this is now an entry point into the network. Um, what do the third party protections look like? Right, All of those kind of things as though, as though it were a device we were building and designing ourselves. I'm not saying we need to um, be in charge of the code and I'm not saying we need to run the mechanics. What I am saying is we need to be an active participant and not a passive participant. We need to actively say, this is our checklist and this checklist must be complete. Even if it's filled out with, you know, um, the vendor will not comply, therefore we've segregated it on its own network. And it is effectively a dark network that only has the following pass-throughs because the security profile is too low, right? I think we've seen too many attacks in, in 2020 and prior years that come in through a backdoor from an IOT device. And I think, I, I don't think anything is gonna happen except that's gonna massively accelerate.
1: Especially those voting machines. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos, I bet we could go for another hour and a
0: half. Yes, there was a very interesting conversation because looking at from the leadership perspective of what is happening versus from an engineering perspective or from a technologist, that a lot of times get influenced from the new trend that the vendor is trying to sell you. And you mentioned something very interesting that we should be looking at that multi-cloud, not looking at the device, but looking at where the people are. And with all the stuff that COVID have show us, is that like you? I think that was Howard that mentioned that now the edge is at the home. So how people are actually moving that could dramatically shift. So before we close, now that we have so many people working at home, should the top leaders reassess their cloud strategy now looking at those new endpoints and how they can deliver the service that they need more from a cloud and see how they can provide them that versus trying to own everything? I absolutely do. I,
2: I think you should be looking at the at, at the cloud as first and foremost, a way to aggregate all those work from home connections and provide some, and, and provide some sort of aggregated security. And I think there's some new startups that we're gonna see in 2021 that are really gonna help focus on that, right? Um, I don't think VDI is the solution. I don't necessarily think Citrix Zen is the solution. Um, I don't think a web front end for everything is the solution. I think it's actually going to be a mix and something maybe even slightly new.
1: I agree. The corporate data center cannot be the collector and manager of the edge, especially the working at home. All your VPN, all your VDI better not be coming from your internal servers. That should absolutely be at the cloud. We should, we should access the corporate servers via the cloud. That's the purpose of having the cloud, having that ability to reach anywhere for any reason. And if you need multi-cloud access to do so, great. Shift your focus from your data center being the central hub to in fact, being the cloud, the central hub of work from home.
2: I think it's okay to say that my data center is the central hub, but I think, I, I think, I think it's not one hub or other, right? And I think too often we say our network is the one, everything else is other. Right. right, I think we need to, to look at kind of multiple rings right. um, and think about it as, as layers of protection as we get closer and closer and closer to the family jewels, right? So, so it's, it's part of the reason I like, I, I like using the cloud is to your point previously, um, multiple zones, right? If most of my work, if I'm based in Denver and most of my workers are in Denver, right? I can find two or three cloud providers that have serious aggregation in Denver. Right. You know what, I can also put one in New York for the people that are in New York. And one of the things that's really important is I can't control the network between any of my users and my data center when they're at home. But right. I can have some control over the responsiveness of the network from the cloud provider to my data center. Right. And therefore, the clo- the, the more I can stretch that string closer and closer and closer to my users, the more control, of, control I have over the responsiveness, the security, the data flow the traffic all of that other stuff right? right so i think if we're not doing that today we're missing out on on the biggest current value of the cloud right. um, before we close i think it is important to note the things that we don't have on our predictions i have neither blockchain nor quantum computing on my <laughs> 2021
0: um predictions I,
2: re- I don't think 2021 is the year for either of those things what you know what, what do you think paul and what do you think you wouldn't you don't have on your predictions for 2021
1: i think those will be discussed i think there'll be services within aws and microsoft and azure to support them however they will not be used all that much Um, i think anything that's in the trough of disillusionment probably isn't ready um, especially for corporate use but i I agree with you there's a lot of things still in the uh, experimental stage uh, that that will not be used including 15 different versions of course
2: yeah, I think, I do think that, that 2021 will truly be the year of analytics. Yep. Um, I think 2021 will see some small adoption of true machine learning. Um, I think we've had effectively a 0% adoption. I think that'll move up to probably 10% of organizations that truly adopt some form of real machine learning. Um, and I think 10% of those will truly adopt some form of real artificial intelligence outside of kind of basic um, pre-educated response sort of things. Right. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that I, that I would say, um, um, you know, the, the kind of common stuff that we do is necessarily what I would call analytics, right. If you could, if you can click a button in Salesforce and turn on artificial intelligence, that's not really what I'm talking about. That's just a consumption model, but truly using artificial intelligence to, Right. Right. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really view those as artificial intelligence necessarily, um, not within the context of what I'm talking about, but really kind of large scale AI deployments at, at organizations. I don't think we're going to see huge ones. Again, I think that's going to be more of a late 2022 with, with early 2022 really being a heavy push into true machine
1: learning. Microsoft Word had Clippy for years, so.
0: <laughs> right, right. Uh, My a highly we'll tuned chatbot. That was actually very interesting. So if you have heard each one of the different points that we have shared today, you see about how cloud can be leveraged and moving forward to 2021, different points of view of services and opportunities within and outside your organization. So these are some of the point of view that we have seen for predictions for next year, but we wanna hear what are your predictions for next year. So make sure that you, in any of the platforms, you leave us a comment with your predictions, what you think that may be happening for next year, because there might be things that we are not aware of or we haven't considered. And then from your point of view, they may be a good topic for a future episode. So as always, make sure that you subscribe and you share with your family, friends, and coworkers because we want to continue to grow as leaders because we want to be the best leaders that we can be. So my friends, we'll see you on our next episode.